All right, I want to invite you to get your Bibles today. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to put your eyes on uh, the paper, then uh, there's some in the racks underneath the seat near you, and I would encourage you to get one out, turn your Bible on if that's the way you read your Bible, and whatever that takes. Let's go to the book of Titus today, the little letter to Titus from the Apostle Paul. Last weekend, we started this series, and uh, my intent is to just walk through this little letter. It's only three chapters long. I thought it would only take three weeks to get through it. Some of you were laughing because you were here last Sunday. I spent the first half of the sermon just telling you why he wrote the letter, and we only got two sentences in, so we're on a pace to have a good Titus Christmas series right now. (laughs) Looking forward to that. No, not really. We're going to accelerate a little bit this morning. I'm glad you're here. Uh, Can I just say, uh, before we get into the text today, uh, one, just to echo one of the announcements that Val gave about this next weekend, our Connect in 60 event. It's a great opportunity. If you've been, even if you've been coming to the church for a few months now, we do these every few months. It's a good opportunity to just stay after church for a meal. Now, I I know this is the the first service, and so we'd encourage you to to come back at about 1230 as we're ending the 11 o'clock service, and join us for a meal. Next Sunday, it'll be an opportunity for myself, Pastor Chris, to just talk about the heart of the church, be a good opportunity for you to ask some questions. It's a a casual forum, uh, and and we'll have a meal right here after church on Sunday. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't been to one of those, to sign up so we know you're coming. Be a part of that with us next weekend. Before we jump right into the text, I know we've prayed a couple times today, but uh, did you find your place in Titus? Did you find it yet? If you find Timothy, turn right. I want to take a moment before we get into this text, and I just want to ask the Holy Spirit to to breathe life on the page for us today. Father, right now, Lord, we, we hold your word in our hands, God, and we cherish your word. We're thankful for your word. God, the psalmist said, it's a lamp into our feet. It's a light unto our path. You're the only one in the room today, Lord, that knows what direction we need this week. You're the only one that knows what's coming. I certainly don't know. Father, we need you to speak by your Holy Spirit. We need you to lead and guide. We need manna from heaven, God. We need you to supply and feed us today. And God, we thank you, Lord, that that we have the privilege to have a seat at the table. God, thank you that, that no one here is unqualified from receiving from the word of God. So today, God, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are receptive and ready to respond to what you're saying to us. God, we want to open not just our hearts today, but we want to open our minds. We want to lean in with all that we are and be attentive to your word. So God, speak to us today. We ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 Well, today I want to get into the next few verses of Titus. And last week, what we did, in case you weren't here, is we really just talked about. Uh, why Paul was motivated to write this letter. I think it's important that you understand context. And and Paul was committed to the church. And we began last week with just saying the church matters. It matters, not just to Paul and to Titus and and to the the people that he was called to pastor, but it matters in the, the plan of God. What we're doing today, it matters. Yesterday, I saw a good reminder of how much it matters. This sanctuary was packed 
yesterday morning is after our men's breakfast, I did the funeral for my next door neighbor, a longtime member of this community. I saw a lot of people in church yesterday that I've invited a lot of times and they never came. But because a longtime member of this community passed away, I had the opportunity to share the gospel with them yesterday. And the church mattered to people that, that don't even go to church. It matters what we do. And, and Paul was so compelled by that thought that he took the time to write this letter and to write First and Second Timothy, and they all three make up the pastoral epistles. He wrote these letters to communicate what the church is supposed to be about, what we're supposed to do. And last week, we, we talked about four things that he outlines just in the first two verses, that we're called as the church to build our faith to grow in the word. We're called as the church to hold out hope and to hold on to hope. And we're called, fourthly, to raise up leaders. And, and as we move into this text a little deeper, that last thought of raising up leaders is really where the focus is going to go in Paul's writing. So today, I, I want to pick up on verse 5. We got past the introduction, and I want you to look at verse 5 with me in Titus chapter 1. And we're going to see really the primary purpose for why Paul wrote this letter. Look at it with me. It says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So there it is, twofold purpose. I want you to set some things in order that are out of order, and I want you to appoint leaders. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to begin to talk about the second one first. He's going to talk about appointing leaders in the church. And so we're going to, we're going to look at this idea for just a moment. And let me just say, this doesn't necessarily mean that there weren't any leaders. Like, it's not like Paul sent Titus to Crete, this island we talked about last week. It was wicked. It was, it was corrupt. There was uh, a lot of things that would make it a hard place to plant a church. He didn't just send him by himself. There, there was churches established. There were people there. But what Paul was saying is, I want you to raise up elders. He also uses the word overseers. And he says, I want you to have people that are in charge. How many of you know if nobody's in charge, it's nobody's fault? You ever had that on the job site? Who's running this thing? Oh, well, we were all just kind of pitching in. I mean, we're, we're all just kind of helping. No, who's in charge? Where does the buck stop, right? And so Paul says, look, there's people there. I need you to raise up leaders. I need you to have overseers. I need you to have people that are going to be accountable. And some you're going to raise up, and some they're already there, but you're going to hold them accountable, and you're going to give them expectations. And we see that in the book of Acts when the church first started. We won't turn there, but in Acts chapter 6, the Bible says that God had... God had spoke through the apostles to raise up leaders, and the, the apostles told the church members, pick seven men, pick seven people, and they gave them a specific job. And the Bible says in, in Acts 6 and about verse 6 that they brought these leaders to the apostles, and the apostles prayed over them. They laid hands on them. They commissioned them to do the work of leadership in the church. And then the very next verse, Acts 6, 7, says, and so the word of God spread. It's not coincidental that, that the advancing of the gospel, that the accomplishing of the task is predicated on order. We need to have order in the church. And that's what Paul is writing about. Paul is saying we need order. We need leadership. We need structure. 
And so he tells him, first of all, I need you to appoint leaders. Now, we're going to look at the qualifications for these leaders. And, and let me just say, as we get into verse 6, this is not a high bar. Okay, I, I want you, to, when we read them, I want you to read them with that thought in mind. Because, you know, when, you, when you're trying to get something out of Scripture, how many, you can kind of overthink stuff. You ever done that? You just think stuff to death. And I, I just got to be honest with you. I was reading this. I'm like, what are, what are you saying, God? Like, what do you, what do you want to say? And I'm reading through this list. And after about the third time I read through the list, I thought, well, that's pretty easy. And so I want you to know, as I read this list, this is not a really high bar. And these are qualifications for leaders in the church. But I want to say that I think these are qualifications for all of us. Okay, these are qualifications, whether you're a leader in the church or you aspire to be a leader or not. I think every one of us can look at this and go, you know what? That's just good advice. This is good advice. And so let's look at what it says. Verse 6, they are to be an elder must be blameless. Now, now that word blameless, wait, that is hard. <laughs> what that actually means is above reproach. In other words, you know, if, if on your job, at the end of the day, the cash drawer is a little short. If everybody in the office looks at you, you're not above reproach. How many of you know, like if, if you're the one everybody assumes did it, you know, if the windows broke and you're the first name that mom and dad screams every time, you're not blameless. Okay, you've got, you've got a, a personality and a, a, an MO that people would say, you know what, it's probably their fault. I mean, like, we don't really know what happened, but it's probably his fault. And, and so Paul says, this should be a blameless person, a person who people just, they, they would be surprised, you know, if your name came up on the evening news, we wouldn't believe it, right? Some people would go, oh, I figured they'd get found out. You know, that's not a blameless person. Paul says, you ought to be blameless, faithful to his wife. How many of you know that's probably just a good principle? A man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now, in verse 7, well, before we get to verse 7, let me say this about, because I, I thought about this this week, and I thought, yeah, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but this needs to be said, and, and I'd say it whether I was the pastor of this church or not, and I'd say it not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a pastor's kid. I, I grew up a PK, and in that verse that I just read, let me just say, that is a qualification for the leader, not the child. Let me read it again. It said, he is a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. That's a command for the leader, not for the child. Because I want to tell you, now my three daughters, they're going to grow up and they are going to love the church. They're going to love the church because their parents love the church and because Jesus loved the church. And, and Pastor Chris's kids, they're going to grow up, and they're going to love the church, and they're going to love to be a part of it. But, but what can happen a lot of times is, and I've seen this happen, I've felt this happen as a child, good meaning, good intending Christians can, can look at a verse like that that says that, that a person who's an elder or an overseer it's supposed to have children who believe that are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. And by the way, Paul wrote to Timothy about the same thing. And, and when he wrote to Timothy about it, he was just very practical. And, and we can all wrap our minds around this. In 1 Timothy 3, 5, he just said to Timothy, he said, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? 
that's the principle. I mean, if you can't keep your own house in order, how are you going to run God's house? And, and that makes sense. But what I've seen happen is, you know, people say things like, whoa, I never thought I'd see the pastor's son do that. Right? Oh, I, man, I just, wow, I mean, and you're the pastor's kid. And what we do is we just impose on kids standards that we really are expecting of their parents. Right? Can I, can I tell you, this is, a, this is a standard for the parent not for the kid. I've had plenty of people that were shocked by things that I've done or things that I've said, even people that have said critical things to me about it. And and, and to all that, I would say, I can take it. I'm a grown man. I can handle criticism. But let's not go to the leaders of the church's children and impose on them the standards that are for their parents. Can I get an amen? Amen. Again, I'm not talking to you as as a pastor. I don't feel like my family's being bullied. Don't hear that. I I praise God for this church, and my family is loved by this church. I'm telling you, I've grown up in this, and I've seen it, and I've lived it, and God help us that our kids don't grow up, yours included, and despise the church because religious saints criticize them for not measuring up. Amen? So Paul says, here's what ought to be the case. They ought to be able to run their own house before they try to run God's house. And then he goes on in verse 7, and he says, since an overseer manages God's household, and let me just stop right there and explain that an overseer is a steward. And and there's three things that Paul's going to outline. I'll just tell you what they are quickly, and then we'll walk through them. There's three things that Paul gives us here that, that are qualities of leaders in the church. And the first one is that they are a steward who loves God's church. Secondly, they are a student who loves God's word. And thirdly, they are a shepherd who loves God's people. This is what a leader ought to be in the church. Whether you have a title or not, these are standards we can all meet. Firstly, he said a leader ought to be a steward who loves God's church. And in verse 7, it says, since an overseer manages God's household, a manager is just someone who looks out for something that doesn't belong to them. I'm not the owner, I'm the manager. I'm just here to oversee it, to make sure it's handled properly. And can I just say that great leaders live with a sense of great privilege. There's an understanding that this isn't mine, that I'm entrusted here. This, this, it's not my classroom or, or my supplies. Or, and and you, some of you have seen this in church, territorialism that can find its way in. Why? Because instead of a stewardship that says, I'm just an overseer, it's not my church and my way, and and my songs, and my color carpet. No, it's the Lord's church. So there's a cooperative spirit that understands that I'm just a a steward here. And so a great leader is a person who who stewards God's church well. You got to be wary of people that are always eager to grab a title. You know, People people that just want to have a position too quickly. You remember, I remember the first time that Moses uh, was given an opportunity. He was a young, wealthy prince growing up in the home of an Egyptian pharaoh. And when he recognized the, the plight of God's people, he was too hasty to take on the mantle of authority. He was too quick to want to be the savior, to be the redeemer. And he went out and he, and he killed an Egyptian. And we, we talked about that in our In the Wilderness series. But 40 years later, God finds an older, humble Moses 
He's now a shepherd on the backside of the wilderness. And when God comes to that more mature, more humbled Moses with the opportunity to lead, it's the very opposite. Instead of grabbing for power, Moses says, God, who am I? Who am I that you would use me? Can I tell you, that's the heart of a, of a steward that loves God's church. A person that doesn't feel like, well, they, they ought to have me do it. I could do it better than anybody else. No, a heart that says, God, this is your church. And who am I to take, to take a position of leadership? But God, if you want me to do this, if you're calling me to this, God, I'll step in and I'll do what you're asking me to do. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Orlando and we were at our general council and, and I heard our general superintendent, Doug Clay, make this statement. I thought it was so fitting. He said, if serving is beneath you, then leadership is beyond you. Some of you need to write that down to share it with your employees this week, because that'll just preach in any context. If serving is beneath you, leadership is beyond you. And so Paul tells Titus that the men that you're looking for, the people that you want to be leaders, they need to be managers, they need to be stewards of God's household. And then the second part of Verse 7 says, he must be blameless, and there's that word again, above reproach, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Again, don't overthink this. This is not a high bar. I mean, if you were hiring a teenager to work a firework stand this summer, you would probably have these same qualifications, Right? I mean, look, don't be overbearing. Don't be quick-tempered. Don't scream at our customers. Don't lose your cool in, 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 in front of people. Don't be given to drunkenness. That just never goes well on any job, right? Just don't be given to drunkenness. Not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he says, he must be hospitable. One who loves what is good. One who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. You're saying, look, you find some people that, that, that have their life together, and people that not just have their life together, but people that, that have a heart for God, people that are holy. And that leads to the second thing. And the second thing is that they would not just be a steward of God's church, but that they would be a student who loves God's word. Paul begins to kind of Lean in on this point because this is really a major emphasis of the whole letter. In verse 9, he says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. Hold firmly to it. In other words, this is about integrity. Talking about leaders in the church being people of integrity. He's saying, don't just put people in leadership that, you know, that have a, a type A personality or, or they're an eight on the Enneagram and people that are just kind of driven. And don't just get people that know how to tell everybody else what to do. Make sure you have people that hold firmly to the word. Make sure you have people that live this thing, not just in the church house, but in their own house. Make sure you have people that hold on to the truth of the word and they live it out daily. Hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. And the emphasis is really right there. And the reason he's emphasizing that they hold to it as it has been taught, and we touched on this last week, is because that there were people that were holding to the truth that was kept changing. There were people in Crete 
They just kept kind of changing the gospel to, to fit with the culture or to fit with their own religious preferences and traditions. And so Paul's saying, make sure that the, the leaders are, are not wishy-washy. Make sure that they know the truth, that they stick with the truth, that they don't change the truth, that they stay with the message. Again, there's parallels in First and Second Timothy to much of this as he writes to Timothy, another young pastor, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, he, he gives a challenge. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. He's talking about standing firm in the truth as you were taught. Now, now I grew up listening to the King James Version, and so I always heard that verse said this way, and some of, the, some of you this will be familiar. In 2 Timothy 2.15, the King James Version says, study to show thyself approved unto God. That's a verse that we always say to preachers, you know, study to show thyself approved unto God. But it's not just for preachers. It's, it's for leaders, and it's a qualification that all of us should strive for to make sure that we are a workman that, that doesn't need to be ashamed, that we rightly divide the word of truth. So here's leadership requirements. Number one, that we be a steward who loves God's church. Secondly, a student who loves God's word. And the third thing is this, that we be a shepherd who loves God's people. Look at verse 9 again. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that, whenever I see so that in my Bible, I usually put parentheses around it or I underline it because so that means a a purpose statement is about to come. There's a mission statement that's about to unfold. There's a reason I'm telling you what I just told you and you're about to learn what it is. So that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So here's, here's the thing about holding firmly to the truth. When a leader holds firmly to the truth, when they're a person, a man or a woman of integrity, when they live it out on Sunday and the rest of the week, that gives them a leadership platform to hold other people accountable. I mean, we, we live in, in, in a glass house these days at least to some degree, you know, with, with social media and, and everything else. And I, in a lot of ways, I literally feel like I live in a glass house because uh, this church built the house that I live in back in the 60s. And every pastor that's pastored this church has lived in that house since that time. So the moment I backed my moving truck into the driveway six years ago, everybody knew that's the pastor. Pastor didn't mow his lawn this weekend. <laughs> Pastor's kids are fighting in the yard. People that don't even know me, they know I I live in a glass house. And that's the the culture that we live in. You know, people that that see you, you checked in this morning. Hey, we're at church. We checked in. Everybody knows. They don't have to drive by your house. You checked in. And I'm glad you did. I love when people do that. They're testifying. They're saying, hey, want everybody that knows me to know I'm in the house of God on Sundays. But then they also know if, you know, you go out and get a little crazy on Friday night. And we saw that picture. I see you checking in on Sunday, but I saw that. I, somebody tagged you in that post you didn't know you were in. We, we live in a transparent culture in many ways. And when a leader is a person of integrity, when they hold on to the word of God and they're trustworthy, it gives them a platform. I, 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 didn't just, I don't just live in a small town. I grew up around here. I mean, there, there's people that are in this church today as I'm looking around. 
There are some people that are in this church today that knew me when I was nine years old. I don't have any skeletons in my closet. Like, they've, they're all out there. I mean, people have known me most of my life. And I certainly am not a perfect person. And I haven't lived a perfect life. And if you haven't met or seen any of my mistakes, stick around. They're coming, no doubt. But you know what? I have an authority to speak from this platform. Not, not an authority of perfection, but of, of blameless. A blameless life. God help me a blameless life. To live above reproach. And that's what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about a standard of perfection. He's saying live a life of integrity that gives you the, the moral authority to speak about issues that people are dealing with. Live above the reproach of other people so that you have a platform to, to speak from. When you, when, when you have a coworker or a friend that's going through a crisis and, and you want to go and help them and God puts a word in your heart and then you go up and you say, you know, I just want to encourage you. You don't want their response to be, who are you to tell me, right? No, you want to have the, the relational equity that they go, man, I, I, I appreciate your counsel on this. I appreciate your wisdom. I, I, would you tell me what you do? Because, man, it's, it's working for you. And, and that's what Paul's talking about here. They're a shepherd who loves God's people, and, and they hold to the word of God so that they can encourage other people. And, and it's not just to encourage. That's part of it. He says they love God's people by encouraging, but he also says and correcting. And the word he uses here is refuting. It, now, it would be way easier to just, just do the encouraging. I mean, to be honest, it, it would be so much easier to just tell everybody all the good news. You know, I did that funeral yesterday, and um, I, I've learned something about myself over the years. I really enjoy honoring people. I mean, I, I enjoy the moment. Yesterday, this place was packed, and it was my privilege to stand here and to share some of the thoughts and the memories and the stories from family that I've collected over the last couple of weeks and to share some of my own stories of, of having uh, Ding as my next-door neighbor. And, and, and as I just honored him as a man, I, I watched people smile. I heard people laugh. I, I saw people, you know, kind of choke up a little bit. And that wasn't just emotionalism. That was honoring a person. And I love doing that. I've learned that, you know what, I really, I value the opportunity to just honor people. And it would have been really easy to just you know, just honor him and let it go. But before that service ended, I had to tell people about the gospel that can save them. And to know about the gospel that can save them, you have to know you need to be saved. And so I told them about sin that condemns them. And I told them that all of us are sinners and all of us are bound for the wages of sin, which the Bible says is death. And people stopped smiling at me. But I did it out of love. And I said it in love. Paul says that as a leader in the church, you got to hold to the whole word. Not just smile at people and tell them how blessed they are, but to hold to the whole word. And part of that is encouraging. And I do believe that should be the bigger part of it. And part of it is refuting those who oppose it. Now, in verse 10 through 16, Paul is going to elaborate on refuting those who oppose the gospel. And that moves really to the second reason that he gave in verse 5. Back in verse 5, he said, The reason I left you there in Crete to pastor this church 
is so that you would appoint elders, but also so that you would put some things in order. So let's talk about putting some things in order for a minute. In verse 10, he kind of dives a little deeper and he says, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. Now, maybe this is one of the reasons that that Paul chose Titus to pastor this church, because this is not the first time that Titus has dealt with what Paul calls the circumcision group. Now, I'll tell you the first time that Titus is ever mentioned in the Bible. It's in the book of Galatians. In fact, hold your place here in Titus and, and go with me to Galatians. Turn left a few small letters, and you'll find Galatians chapter 2. This is the first mention of Titus, and we're going to get back to this challenge that Paul gives him. I need you to refute those, especially those of the circumcision group, and you're going to understand in the next few moments who they are and and what they stood for. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, then after 14 years This is Paul writing, same guy. He said, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. Now, remember, I said last week, Titus was Greek. He wasn't a Jew, but he was saved, and and Paul had discipled him, and and Paul's been out preaching the gospel for like 14 years, and, and God's saving all kinds of Gentile people, and Titus is one of them, and so Paul says, I went back to Jerusalem, I took Barnabas, and we took Titus with us. And he says in verse 2, I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them that I preach among the Gentiles. Now imagine this, Paul was not originally one of the apostles. He wasn't a disciple of Jesus. He he said of himself, I I was one like uh, born out of season. Like, I, I missed all of that. He came to Christ later. Jesus had already resurrected and gone back to heaven. Then he came back, and he met Paul on the Damascus Road uh, in, a, in a supernatural encounter, and he saved him, and he called him to the gospel. And so, so now, after 14 years of evangelism and church planting and seeing people that are far from God come near, Paul goes back to Jerusalem, and now he's like meeting with the authority. It's like being called into the principal's office, right? He's going in to meet with those who are esteemed as leaders. And he said, I I presented to them the gospel that I had been preaching, and here's why. Look at it. He says in verse 2, I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. So he respected their authority. He saw what God was doing. He He knew the scriptures well, but he just wanted to make sure and I'm not, I'm not running my race in vain here. And then verse 3 says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Now, we're not going to go here today, but in Acts chapter 15, you can actually read this whole meeting that he talks about in Galatians. It's called the Jerusalem Council. And they got together and they had this meeting because basically what was happening, the the debate on the floor was this question, who's allowed to be in the church? That was the debate on the floor. And the question was, do you have to be Jewish to follow a Jewish Messiah? And so the Jews, I mean, they were already following all of the Jewish customs, which included circumcision for all the men. But now all these Gentile people are getting saved. And, And 
Paul's planting churches, and then he's going somewhere else, and he's planting churches, and then all of a sudden, these guest speakers come into the church that he's already planted, and they start telling all those Gentile Christians, wait a minute, you, you, wait, you guys, you got ahead of yourself. You're not saved yet, because you're not, you're not Jewish yet, and, and you, you got to get circumcised. You got to become a Jew, you, and, then, and then you can accept the gospel, and Paul's going, wait a minute. I thought, I thought we were saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest anyone should boast. I, I thought it was all a work of Jesus for us. How, how, would, how would any religious tradition make you more saved than saved? And so they, he said, I got to meet with these guys. And so Paul goes, and he takes Barnabas, and they thought, you know what, Titus, this young guy, man, he's on fire for the Lord. He's a Greek kid. He, he's not circumcised. I told him he didn't need to be circumcised. He's as saved as you guys are saved. I'm bringing Titus with me. And so Titus goes, and, and they have this whole meeting, and they have this debate on the floor. Who is allowed to be in the church? So when Paul says to Titus in verse 10, Titus, you have to refute the circumcision group. That's who he's talking about. He's talking about those folks that want to add on requirements to the gospel. He's talking about people that want to make it more difficult for others to come to Christ than the standard that has already been set in the gospel. Paul went on in Galatians 2, just a little bit farther down. Again, he's writing about that that meeting that they had, and he said in verse 8, He said, for God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, to the Jews, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentile. So James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those esteemed as the pillars, that's those leaders in the church, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. So he says, the, the meeting ended well. I hadn't been running in vain. I hadn't been preaching in vain. The gospel that I'm preaching is the gospel that saves. No extra requirements. And he says, they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and that they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing that I had been eager to do all along. So they had that big debate in Acts 15, and finally the meeting closed with James, the brother of Jesus. He makes a resolution, and the resolution was in Acts 15 and verse 9, and he said, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And can I say 2,000 years later, we ought to read that and believe that because there are still people today that want to make it difficult for the Gentiles to turn to God. There are still people today that want to add on. Now, our legalism looks different. We might not have a, a circumcision group, but it's the same message. It's the same idea that, that gets propagated, and it's a religious spirit that says, if you believe like we believe, and if you behave like we behave, then you can belong. And I tell you, the gospel says you belong. You belong. Not, not change your ways, not, not change your, your, not, no, just come just as you are. Just come and put faith in Jesus. You belong. And then what happens, and we know to be true, is the power of the gospel. It does a work from the inside out. 
There's no outward things you have to do to come to Christ. You just come the way you are. You simply belong. And then the gospel begins to take shape in your life. And we have absolute confidence that we can accept and embrace anybody that comes through the doors of the church. And we can say, you belong here. Because if we'll make room at the table and and they'll make room in their heart, God will change their life. God will shape them. Amen. You can clap about that. That's all right. It's Sunday morning. Paul said, this is the gospel. The gospel makes us good. You don't have to be good to come. This is what the gospel does. The gospel makes us good. And this is the battle that that Paul, he fought it on many fronts. He wrote about it in many letters. And, And when it came to Crete, the island of Crete where Titus is, where he's writing to, he told Titus very bluntly, Look at verse 11 in Titus 1. He said very bluntly, they must be silenced. You, you got you to you shut them down, Titus. You, you, can't, you can't have this spirit of religion coming in and, and, and adding, adding on all these man-made uh, requirements and, and all of these traditions. And, and you can't have people adding on all these steps it's going to choke out the life of the church. This is, remember, we talked about this last week, but Paul is a man who was, was hell-bent on destroying Christianity when he met Jesus. Talk about a guy that come just as you are. I mean, dagger in hand, he's riding to Damascus to persecute the church, and he meets Jesus. He knows if we, if we can just let somebody meet Jesus, he'll take care of the rest. Jesus called us to be fishers of men, not cleaners of fish. See, sometimes the reason the church isn't growing is because we're trying to clean the fish that are still swimming in the water. They're not even in the boat yet. We're telling them how to straighten up their life. No, just just pull them in. Draw them in by all means necessary. Bring them in and let the Spirit of God do a work in their life. Paul said, you got to silence those people. Because, he says, verse 11, they're disrupting whole households by teaching things that ought not to be taught, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. So there's another component to all of this. Apparently, not just their message is wrong, but their motive is wrong. He said, not only are they preaching the wrong thing, they're in it for the money. Now, can can I just just give you some advice? If you're in it for the money, don't become a preacher. Do something else if you're in it for the money. But these folks were in it for the money. And he said, hey, you got to silence these folks. Because not only are they saying the wrong thing, but they're doing it for dishonest gain. And then Paul does something brilliant. He quotes a famous Cretan poet that was from several centuries before, a man by the name of Epimenides. He quotes their, and remember I said last week, Cretans were notorious for just being liars for being scandalous people. And, and so one of their own prophets had written this, and, and Paul quotes one of their own poets in Titus chapter 1, verse 12. He says, one of Crete's own prophets, Epimenides, has said this, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And then Paul just adds, verse 13, this saying is true. <laughs> like, let me just tell you what you're dealing with here. 
And apparently, these people that were living on the island of Crete, even though they were professing to be Christians, they were true Cretans. And he said, these folks are no different. The gospel hasn't transformed their life. What their own people say about them is true about them. They're lazy, they're liars, they're gluttons, they're evil. William Hendricks, Hendrickson said this. He said, in the church of God, there is no such thing as freedom of misleading speech. I thought that was such a great statement. You know, we, we are quick to uh, celebrate our freedom of speech in our society, but in the church, there is no freedom of misleading speech. Paul said, you got to silence them because they're not telling the truth. And they're destroying whole households. Like families are getting messed up. Kids are growing up and, and they're under such bondage that they're, they're just running from all of this. There's no life in what they're doing. They're putting so much uh, oppression on people that there's no joy in the church. And he said, you, you just got to silence these people. They're killing our men's ministry, man. They're telling all the guys, the grown men, they got to be circumcised. You got to silence those folks, man. You imagine if that was the message at the men's breakfast yesterday? Guys, I've heard from the Lord. The Lord told Moses, make for thee sharp knives. Like, nope. Not growing a church that way. He said, the false teachers must be silenced. And that sounds, here's the problem. You know, we're compassionate. That sounds harsh. That sounds unloving. To, to say, I'm going to silence someone. But in reality, the unloving thing to do is to let false teaching just go on in the church. The unloving thing to do is to let them spread harmful teaching. The loving thing to do is to, to follow Paul's directive here, to rebuke. He said, rebuke false teachers sharply so that, and here's another purpose statement. Why? Why do you want me to rebuke them? Not, not just so that you can put them in their place, not so that you can call out all the false prophets on Facebook. and No, why do you silence them in the church? So that, he says in verse 13, they will be sound in the faith. In other words, so that they'll stop teaching error. Correct them. Show them the error. So that they'll stop teaching error. So that they'll be sound in the faith. In verse 14 says, and they will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Paul was saying, look, the people that, that you have leadership equity with, and that's the key. He's talking to the people that are, that are in the church. That you got you to gotta correct them. You got to silence them if they're propagating stuff that, that is not uh, the truth that we hold firmly to. Because there are other people out there that you're not going to convince. And they're influencing them. And it would be unloving for you to let other people just continue to influence the church in the wrong direction. And so stand for the truth so that they'll be sound in their faith. And then in verse 15, he says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupt. So what Paul's talking about here is, some of the man-made laws that the false teachers had, had imposed on the people had to do with religious purity, like ceremonial cleanliness and, and, and things that you can and can't do. 
And when Paul talked to Timothy about this same issue, he went into a little bit more detail. Now, let me just give you a good principle for for biblical study. The, The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. All right? So the best comment, if you want to know what the word means, just just go deeper into the word. And so what is Paul talking about when he says to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and they don't believe, well, then nothing is pure to them. Well, you look at what he wrote to the other young pastor, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, and he gives more clarity into the culture. He said, the spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and followed deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. So he's kind of ratcheted up the fire on, he's calling these, this out. He's saying, not only is this false teaching, some of this is inspired by demons. Then he says in verse two, such teachings come through hypocritical liars. Sounds like he's talking about the Cretans here. <laughs> Whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Here's what they do, he says, verse 3. They forbid people to marry, and they order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And and, and so Paul is saying, this this is what they were doing. These false teachers are coming in, and they're telling people, well, if you're going to be holy, you can't get married. The young people are just burning with desire, going, well, I want to follow God, but I you know, I, I want to get married. And other people who say, no, you can't eat those foods. They're unclean. Paul is saying, no, no, no. God's already revealed that you don't call unclean what I've called clean. They're imposing all of these uh, social and, and dietary laws on the people. So in the last verse of chapter one in Titus, Paul, he, he's going to underscore the need for the leaders in the church to be people of integrity. He's just raising this bar. He's saying, we need, we need the people of God to be people of integrity, people that are stewards of the church, people who love the word. Say, so we need the, the people of God to be shepherds of the house of God, of the church of God. And look at verse 16. He says about these false teachers, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. Again, it's like they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. They're saying one thing and their life is communicating something else. He says they're detestable. They're disobedient and they are unfit for doing anything good. That's a harsh statement. And he's emphasizing that they're unfit for doing anything good because one of the major themes of this whole letter is that we're called to do good. That's why we've, we've put a subtitle on this series of how the gospel makes us good because there's something that, that God does in a person who opens their life to his work. And he said, these people aren't open to the work of grace. They're not, they're not open to the transformational power of the gospel. They're, they're still trying to jump through all the religious hoops. And worse than that, they're imposing those on everybody else. They're making it hard for people to be a part of the church and to get saved. And the scariest thing about them, of, of everything that he says about those types of people, maybe the scariest word is in verse 10 at the very beginning of it. He said in verse 10, for there are many. There's many of them. Not just one or two. There are many people. And can I just say that that is true today in the church? There there are many people that are making it hard for others to come to Christ. And and maybe, maybe it's their own comfort. 
Maybe, you know, I, I come to my church and I just want everybody to, you know, be like me. I get uncomfortable when, you know, the riffraff shows up. I, I, don't, I, don't really, I don't really think we should have those kind of folks around here. I, I don't think you should let those people serve on the greeter team. I mean, you know, not picking on your greeters, by the way. <laughs> I don't know who's serving today. <laughs> but we see it keeps, it keeps coming up in the church in different ways. It keeps coming up. And it's that religious spirit that wants to clean the fish before they're caught. And Paul is just saying, the gospel, the gospel can change a person. The gospel can make a person good. Be committed to the gospel. And you know what Paul's plan for Titus was to deal with the many false teachers? His plan to deal with false teachers was to raise up more right teachers. Raise up more true teachers. Raise up leaders. Let's not spend all of our time squabbling with people that don't understand. Let's not waste our time. There's other people out there that want the truth. There's other people that God has given us uh, relational equity with and leadership influence with. There's another generation that's coming up, Titus, in the church. You find people that are hungry for the truth and pour yourself into them. Encourage them. And when they're wrong, refute them. Rebuke them if necessary. But do it so that they hold on to the truth. So that they stand with sound faith. Can I just say that's God's plan for the church today? For all of us. We need men and women that are hungry for God's word. That don't want to just live on sound bites and church memes. Somebody would say, God, I want to know what your word says. That's, that's really the reason that, that we're in this series. The reason that we slow down a few times a year to say we're just going to, line by line, we're just going to walk through one of the books of the Bible. Because if you get nothing out of what I've said, I hope one of the takeaways from any text would be that, wow, man, the gospel is powerful. Wow, God's word, it really does speak to my life. It really does speak to the issues of our day. This is more than a history lesson. God's plan is that men and women would get hungry to study the word, to know the word, and to share the word. God wants to raise up men and women in the church today that would hold firmly to the message. And as I was just meditating on the conclusion of this message, a thought just fired across the synapses of my mind. What if God is calling somebody into ministry today? And I got to be honest, that thought hadn't crossed my mind in a lot of Sundays. And the Holy Spirit just arrested my attention in that moment. And I hope he'll arrest yours right now. And I want you to ask yourself that question. Is God calling me to be a teacher of the word? That's, God, that's God's plan for confronting false doctrine and false teaching. Now, now maybe for you it'll look different. Don't, don't get the question wrong. Don't say, is God asking me to, to pastor a congregation? He may be, but maybe God's calling you to teach in a life group. And you're saying, you know what? God, I've been kind of hesitant to step in, but God's calling me to know the word, to study the word, and to share the word. Maybe, maybe for you, it would be teaching children. Maybe it would be going to a nursing home. We just got a call the other week from one of the nursing homes saying, do you have anybody in your church that would be willing to come on a Thursday night once a month and just share? And my, my honest thought was, I don't know. Do we have anybody? 
that would love to just show up on a Thursday night, someone that would study the word and know the word and share the word. I want to challenge you. Is God speaking to you today to be a teacher of the word? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, that pastors and teachers, as well as apostles and evangelists and prophets, that those are gifts from Jesus himself to the church. He gives those gifts to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. And so we need Jesus to release those gifts in the church. So I want to pray that God would do that. And and if you sense the Lord speaking to you about stepping further into ministry, about about stepping up, that God stirred your heart to get involved in some way of saying, God, I I don't want to make the excuse anymore of I don't know enough or, or I'm not qualified. If the Holy Spirit is tugging at your heart today, I'm going to ask that God would just release the gifts right now over your life. Would you just pray with me? Father, right now in this place, we thank you that, that Lord Jesus, you have gifts for the church, gifts that are going to equip the church, gifts that are going to prepare the church, gifts that are going to make us strong in these last days, Lord, to stand for the unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray today that you would just release the teaching gift Release the pastoring gift in this room today. Lord, call, call some of us to, to another level of obedience today. Lord, I believe there are men and women, teenagers in this place, Lord, that you're speaking to about their calling. You're speaking to about your purpose, God. It may be here. It, it, it may be on the mission field. It may be in a life group or, or in a classroom or with boys and girls, or with teenagers. God, speak now and release your gifts. Pastor, teacher, in our lives today. God, we we open our hearts to receive your commission and your call. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in just a moment, we're going to open these altars for prayer as we close this service, but... I want to share one final word with you. Paul wrote again, as I said earlier, about this issue many times. The issue of people coming up with lists and reasons that people don't belong in the church. And in Colossians, he's writing to another group of people who were not born in the right family. And just like all of us, they had a long list of reasons that they don't belong in God's family. And, and maybe it was self-imposed or maybe somebody else imposed it on you. But I just want to say, if you're here today and you've got a list that plays in your mind, all the reasons that you do not belong in God's family, that you're not accepted, that, that you shouldn't have a place here. If you've got a list, I want you to just hear these final words that Paul said to the church at Colossae in chapter 2 and verse 13 and 14. He said this. He said, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, again, when you didn't fit in, when you didn't belong, when you were far from God, when you were born into the wrong family, he's saying, God then made you alive with Christ. 
what he's saying. Here's what God did. Before you did any of the stuff that people think you should have done, here's what God did. He made you alive in Christ. He forgave us of all of our sins. Having canceled the charge of the legal indebtedness. I just want you to hear those words today. Here's the power of the cross. Jesus has canceled the charge. For every list that people want to give you, for every reason that you can come up with on your own, that says, I don't, I don't fit in, I don't belong, I, I'm not accepted, I'm not loved, I, I'm not a part. He canceled the charge of the legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. And you may ask, well, where is that list today? And he says he took that list of all your inadequacies, of all your failures, of all your shortcomings, and he said he has taken it away and he nailed it to the cross. Amen. That's where your list is at. It's nailed to the cross today. It's not coming down. So if you're here and you have a list that stands and condemns you today, I want you to see it nailed to the cross. Cancel. Cancel. Come on in. It's canceled. I want to pray for you one more time, and then we're going to open these altars. God, today, if there's anyone here that feels, feels that freedom in that verse that we just read, God, I pray that they would receive it right now by faith. Just with faith, grab a hold of this promise that all of the things that keep me from coming to Christ have been nailed to his cross and the way is open that I may come in. If that's you and you just need to, to step in to that freedom and you need to step into that grace, if that's you today and you need to step in to a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want you to just say it out loud. Say, Jesus, I'm stepping in. Come on, Jesus, I'm stepping in. Jesus, I receive your grace. Jesus, I receive your forgiveness. And right now, Lord, we just, we just post an eviction notice to every lie of the enemy, every manipulation, every thought that is not from the throne of God that would tell us that we don't have a place in your kingdom. Jesus, we don't have to be good to come. Your gospel makes us good. And so, Lord, we come today just as we are, and we receive freedom, and we receive grace we receive hope for tomorrow because that's the power of the cross. We receive it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen. Amen. Come on, let's stand together today.